Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. This is, this is the title of the talk that I thought would be best here. Maybe it might be useful though before I start. Uh, just a, uh, a sentence or two about my background and kind of where I'm, I'm coming from and the kinds of things I, I work on. Um, as the intro said, basically I come out of an engineering background. <clears throat> Mechanical engineering is my uh, card-carrying official thing. I've been involved in uh, a department called Engineering and Public Policy, which uh, I actually helped create when I first joined Carnegie Mellon many years ago. It's basically what's kept me there all the years. It's where I have all my fun. <clears throat> uh, and what we do in that department, it, uh, it's an interdisciplinary department, a um, little bit different in nature from Bryn, but it really has the same kind of philosophy. <clears throat> uh, faculty in that department are jointly appointed um, in EPP as the acronym, uh, and one of the traditional uh, engineering departments, five uh, in all. But we also have joint appointments in the engineering college with faculty outside the engineering college in humanities and social science and the business school, <clears throat> uh, a number of social scientists. And we work on a variety of uh, uh, interdisciplinary problems where technical details really matter to the policy analysis. And uh, energy and environment is one of the main areas we work on. It's where I do most of my work. I've been mainly involved in uh, looking uh, at uh, the potential role and limitations of technology to address environmental problems. Uh, a lot of those have to do with energy generation uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, coal in particular. Um, and um, in recent years, that has um, focused attention on a particular technology of carbon sequestration that I'll be talking about in a, in a short course. Uh, I thought for purposes of this lecture, it would be more interesting to talk about um, another aspect of the work I've been doing jointly with uh, some colleagues in, uh, 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 in history, actually. A colleague particularly works on the history of technology and development. And that's been uh, focused on trying to understand better the role of government policies in technology innovation. There's a large literature on technology innovation, but as I'll <coughs> uh, show you here, it's been uh, mainly focused on things for which <coughs> there are uh, natural markets, things that people want to buy, um, and much less so on a class of technology that I'll call environmental technologies, which. Uh, I will argue is one of the main uh, uh, needs in addressing climate change. Uh, so let me uh, try to uh, uh, <coughs> engage you in, uh, uh, in that discussion with a couple of questions that I'll, <coughs> I'll try to uh, uh, address and uh, hopefully finish uh, uh, on time. Um, first, um, although I understand most of you are very familiar with the climate issue and fairly sophisticated in case <coughs> some of you have wandered in off the streets, uh, just to get out of the sun and uh, don't know about this issue. I'll talk a little bit about uh, what the goals of climate change mitigation are just to establish some vocabulary and basically how big a deal is this. Uh, I'll talk next about the kinds of technology innovations uh, that will be needed to uh, uh, address and reduce greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Uh, something about the process of technology innovation, what we know about it how government actions influence that process, and what types of policies might be needed to foster innovations that uh, 
will uh, uh, foster in turn climate change mitigation. Uh, so let me talk first about the goal of climate change mitigation. Here's a slide I'm sure many, if not all of you, have seen before. I know it was in one of the lectures recently. <laughs> uh, but just for grounding, uh, to remember that uh, in the last century or two, the concentration in the atmosphere of the class of gases we're calling greenhouse gases that mainly include carbon dioxide, CO2, and uh, several others, uh, those have been increasing rather dramatically uh, as a result of human activities. Uh, and uh, on the current course uh, we're on, they will continue to increase uh, for the foreseeable future. And so when we talk about what climate change mitigation means, uh, <clears throat> uh, I come back to what has been for the past 20 years uh, the de facto policy driver at a global level, and that's this statement that was adopted in the UN Framework Convention uh, in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, it calls for stabilizing greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere uh, at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Now those are words that have clearly been written by lawyers, not engineers. <coughs> uh, they are uh, somewhat vague. Um, <coughs> they don't uh, hold anybody responsible for doing anything in particular in any particular time frame, and that's why all the countries of the world have signed up uh, <coughs> to that statement. Um, but yet, despite a lot of these ambiguities, including what we mean by dangerous anthropogenic interference, despite those things, in fact, that goal of stabilizing in the atmosphere the concentration of greenhouse gases, <coughs> concentrations that are now increasing, uh, that statement alone has actually rather profound uh, implications. Uh, in order to stabilize concentrations in the atmosphere, because greenhouse gases, unlike conventional air pollutants like <coughs> nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxide, those conventional air pollutants uh, <coughs> have relatively short terms in the atmosphere. <coughs> if we stopped emitting them today, they'd wash out within days, weeks, or months. Not so with these greenhouse gases. Uh, once they're in the atmosphere, they come out very, very slowly on time scales of centuries. Uh, and because of that, uh, the implication is that if you want to reduce the concentration or stabilize the concentration in the atmosphere, it's not enough just to even keep emissions at a stable level. Uh, you generally have to do more. And so uh, global emissions basically have to be reduced significantly almost no matter what stabilization target uh, you pick. And the best analogy I can think of that, for those of you unfamiliar with this, would be what you'd have to do to stabilize <coughs> the level of water in a bathtub. Think of the atmosphere as a bathtub. Faucets are full open now. What would you have to do to prevent uh, <coughs> that level from rising when you have a very slow drain? And we all know what the answer is. You've got to turn down the faucets uh, to match whatever the drain is capable of doing. Uh, uh, that turns out to be uh, a fairly large amount. The, the estimates of the uh, last uh, IPCC uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change assessment a couple of years ago uh, was that reductions on the order of 50 to 80, 85 percent by the middle of this century would be needed uh, to stabilize atmospheric concentrations at levels that they judged, in fact, met that uh, <clears throat> notional definition of preventing uh, dangerous anthropogenic interference. And that's actually a conclusion that was affirmed 
just a year or two ago in a large National Academy study uh, that was mentioned earlier. So we're talking about big changes, not small ones. If we could solve the climate problem with a 5 or 10% uh, <coughs> reduction, uh, I probably wouldn't be here talking about this. Uh, but we're talking, in fact, about things that would look very different. So what kinds of innovations would be needed to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions? As we know, there's a family of gases <coughs> uh, that have this characteristic in the atmosphere. Uh, <coughs> Uh, but carbon dioxide is, uh, is the major one. It's about 80, 85% of the overall uh, warming attributed, uh, potential warming attributed to greenhouse gases. And uh, that has been the focus of uh, much attention. And uh, for purposes of today's talk, I will do that as well. Let me recover my glass of water here. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit more about carbon dioxide. <clears throat> Just to get uh, grounded in terms of where it comes from, again, this is probably familiar to many of you, but perhaps not all of you. Uh, <clears throat> these are the various types of activities we engage in in this country. Residential and commercial refers basically to energy used in buildings, all the lights in this room, <clears throat> and so on. Uh, industrial means industrial processes that make the things that we like to buy, and transportation uh, speaks for itself, especially in California. Um, the blue means CO2 attributed to burning oil, and the light, uh, let's see if this is, the light yellow in these bars is basically CO2 attributed to the use of, of electricity. Uh, since electricity has to be manufactured, we have to ask where electricity come from, comes from. And uh, in this country, about 70%, 70% of our electricity comes from burning fossil fuels roughly 50% from burning coal and the other 20% from burning natural gas. <coughs> uh, and that, predominantly the coal portion of that, uh, accounts for about 40% of all the CO2 emitted nationally in this country. So fundamentally, if we're going to address the climate change issue, we have to change the two things that people love the most. <coughs> their cars and their wall sockets. Right? Uh, the things that we use to recharge our iPods and iPhones without which life wouldn't be worth living. Right? So uh, those are the two main areas of uh, focus that I will uh, try to uh, touch on uh, today in terms of where uh, innovation might uh, play a key role. So what kinds of innovations might be needed? Let me just mention four and, uh, <coughs> Uh, in general. First, technologies that can reduce the demand for energy uh, is kind of a no-brainer. The less energy you need, the less, uh, uh, the less uh, energy fuels you have to burn or any sort. So that will certainly be at the top of the list, and as we'll see, it'll also be one of the most cost-effective things we can do. Uh, the energy we do use, we need to use more efficiently. So innovations that can improve the efficiency of energy use in all sectors of the economy are innovations that can help mitigate climate change. Technologies that can produce and use alternative energy sources. <coughs> we rely on fossil fuels today for about 85% of our energy. <coughs> so renewables of various types, potentially, potentially nuclear, <coughs> are things that uh, <coughs> would uh, emit uh, either low or no greenhouse gas emissions, moving from Coal to natural gas would be a step in the right direction, but natural gas alone wouldn't uh, get 
you as far as we would need to be. So alternative energy sources. And the fourth, which may be one that some of you might be less familiar with, would be technologies that uh, at least for uh, some period of time could be used to capture and sequester the CO2 that is currently being produced from large stationary sources, particularly coal-fired power plants. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little later on. Scale of deployment has to be thought about. Um, and that can generate some reasonable numbers, but some scary numbers. If you talk about changes at power plants, um, we're talking about scales on the order of hundreds. Uh, technically, we have many thousands of power plants in the country, but mainly most of our electricity comes from really on the order of maybe 500 power plants around the country, large ones. So we're talking about hundreds of power plants. <clears throat> when we talk about transportation, we're talking about uh, producing uh, tens of millions of cars per year, so hundreds of millions totally. Uh, but then when we think about various other uh, end-use sectors, uh, for energy, we're talking literally about hundreds of millions of devices and end uh, use things, ranging from light bulbs to hair dryers to anything that you plug in uh, or uh, use to, to burn. So, this is going to require deployment of new technologies on a massive scale, uh, and it ain't going to happen overnight. Uh, here are some results from some modeling scenarios, different groups around the country and around the world use large energy economic models to try to analyze policy scenarios and try to figure out how you can get there from here. Uh, uh, on, the, uh, on the left is a, uh, uh, a picture of US energy use in 2000. Don't strain your eyes reading the different colors are different types of, uh, of uh, energy or energy reduction. Um, and these other five are five different models, <coughs> computer models, that uh, tried to look at what it would take to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in this country by about 80% by mid-century, which is, uh, in fact, the current administration goal. <coughs> All you have to see is that, uh, well, two things. The models don't agree with each other completely, <coughs> uh, but all of them look very different from the current situation here on, on the left. Okay? <coughs> the largest contributor in many of these is that top gray bar, which is in fact energy reduction, <coughs> uh, and the others are other types of, uh, of fossil fuels. These ones with dashes <coughs> are using that technology of carbon uh, capture and storage that I mentioned. So that's in play as well as uh, a number of other things. The take home message from all of these qualitatively is that all of these models indicate <clears throat> that to reach these aggressive targets, we'll have to have major changes in the US energy system, uh, and that technology innovation is going to be required again on a large scale. So what do we know about uh, the process of, uh, of technology innovation? As I say, this has been uh, widely studied in the literature. Most, <coughs> uh, most of the uh, researchers in, in this community uh, come from uh, uh, various types of social science disciplines, a lot of economists and others. Uh, and there is a jargon, as there is in most disciplines, and these are four words that are often used, invention, innovation, uh, adoption, and diffusion. Uh, technically, again, uh, an innovation is something simply that is being offered in a commercial 
uh, <coughs> in a commercial marketplace. It, it is no guarantee that anybody is actually uh, using it or, or buying it. It's simply being made available. <coughs> uh, these last two stages apply to the uh, uh, diffusion of that. And uh, for many years, the way the uh, both technical and policy communities have, have thought about the overall issue of technological change, bigger than innovation, <coughs> uh, is as kind of a linear process involving these four elements. So uh, in this scheme, uh, if you wanted to invent a better mousetrap, uh, all you have to do is uh, spend money on R&D to invent new stuff, uh, and it comes out. Let's see if this is going to work. Well, okay, so <coughs> there were, you missed the sound effect, but there was a sound effect of uh, <coughs> a cash register ringing and squishing through and applause in the mousetrap. Okay. Um, <coughs> the X simply means that uh, while this has been a very widely uh, thought about model. Uh, in fact, the only problem that uh, you have with it is that it, it's wrong. It's just fundamentally not the way, not the, way the system works. <coughs> a more realistic model is one that involves not a linear process, but in fact, a lot of interaction uh, <coughs> and feedback loops among these four stages <coughs> so that uh, people who uh, innovate and invent learn from people who have used technologies, <coughs> and uh, that continues uh, on. So uh, <coughs> the take-home message here, and I think this will be reinforced in other things that will be coming up soon, is that R&D, research and development, certainly is critical to this process, but it alone is not enough. Uh, <coughs> there are these other phenomena, often called learning by doing or learning by using that are also a key part of this overall process uh, of innovation. So next, uh, let's turn to the role of government and ask how, <coughs> how government actions uh, influence the technology innovation process. <coughs> Again, most of the literature uh, in this subject talks about a class of government actions that are typically referred to as technology policy. <coughs> Um, and here are, uh, uh, are a number of them. They involve policies that involve direct government funding of R&D. This is the kind of bread and butter of universities and research labs and stuff that we're very, very familiar with. Uh, but they also involve these other activities, direct or indirect support for commercialization uh, and support for learning and diffusion of knowledge. <coughs> uh, and uh, we argued in a piece that we did for the Pew Center a number of years ago that uh, in fact, all of these, in fact, are, are necessary and, and essential to address the innovation needs uh, of climate change. Uh, <clears throat> I won't go through these in, uh, in any uh, detail. Uh, I could point to a couple down here. Government procurement is one of the items in this indirect. That has been phenomenally successful and essential <clears throat> in developing and commercializing two technologies that we have uh, grown quite accustomed to. One is jet airplanes. <clears throat> Who else but the federal government would spend a fortune <coughs> on a plane that would fly for half an hour and then had to have the engine replaced? Uh, <coughs> but that's basically the early history of the jet engine. Uh, and uh, computers, right? <coughs> uh, early computers, uh, maybe not quite the size of this room, but something close to it. Uh, <coughs> all of that was funded 
basically through uh, Defense Department uh, uh, procurement uh, issues. So again, a variety of these things are, are in fact. <clears throat> what they all have in common, if you look at them, is that uh, they are all generically carrots. That is, they are all uh, voluntary, <clears throat> and uh, they provide incentives that uh, one can either take or, uh, <clears throat> or not. Uh, and they also uh, influence different phases of that uh, four-stage innovation process that, uh, that I mentioned. Okay. Uh, many of these have been, again, very successful in also moving us toward innovations that uh, of the sort we'll need for, for climate change. Um, again, especially here in California, the growth in uh, the generation of electricity from wind uh, <coughs> could not have happened without government incentives uh, of, uh, of, various, uh, of various sorts. Okay. Um, <coughs> here is uh, a, a depiction in terms of what's <coughs> often called a learning curve that shows that the costs of these technologies have all f also come down uh, as uh, more of them are installed and as the learning process feeds back. <coughs> so here's uh, photovoltaics, uh, <coughs> uh, wind farms, and gas turbines as, as three examples. Uh, again, all benefiting from these kinds of uh, uh, technology policy uh, 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 issues. Uh, there's another class of government actions that um, <coughs> often aren't spoken about in polite uh, society, and uh, those are regulatory policy uh, tools, uh, sticks as opposed to carrots, if you like. <coughs> and here are a number of these. Uh, they include various types of performance standards uh, that uh, technologies need to meet, uh, portfolio standards like renewable portfolio standards that we have here, uh, cap and trade programs, emission taxes, fuel taxes. Uh, these are basically requirements. It's not optional. Uh, the government basically in, in the name of society is doing this to uh, achieve an objective. So here these are the incentives here come from uh, sticks as opposed to carrots. Uh, again, they also influence different phases of the innovation process. Um, some examples, uh, <coughs> this one are uh, requirements for the, essentially a type of performance standard, if you like, for automobiles. <coughs> Starting in the mid-1970s when we had our first uh, energy crisis or oil shortage, <coughs> uh, when the average U.S. car uh, got about uh, 12 or 13 miles a gallon. <coughs> uh, Congress mandated that by a date certain, which of course wasn't, um, <coughs> that the fuel economy uh, be doubled. That is, we get twice as many miles on that same gallon of gas at the unit of, of a car. <coughs> uh, this top line shows, so in, on this scale, a bigger number is, uh, is a more efficient. So these are passenger cars, light trucks, <coughs> And this is the overall fleet average. And again, as you know, we, ha we have not had any changes in those standards until just uh, very recently, the last year or two. <coughs> uh, and then during that time period, we started driving more trucks. Uh, and so the average uh, <coughs> uh, fuel economy of the US fleet, in fact, started getting, uh, getting worse. <coughs> uh, we're now on a trajectory that will uh, <coughs> dramatically change that over the next decade or so. Um, here's another one. This is essentially a poster child for uh, <coughs> the potential of um, 
thoughtful regulatory policies to change uh, <coughs> technology in ways that improve energy efficiency. Um, and like a lot of these things, they started in California. Uh, <coughs> so this is a slide from Mark Rosenfeld, formerly the Energy Commission, who I expect many of you uh, know. It's, it's a bit complicated, but the one I want to point to is the blue line, which is the energy use of the average refrigerator. In the mid-1970s, <coughs> the refrigerator was the most energy-intensive, energy-consuming appliance in your house. <coughs> and it was getting uh, continually worse. California started adopting standards that essentially required all new, re new refrigerators sold to, <coughs> to be as good as some of the best ones on the market, and those standards have been tightened since more recently, uh, there are federal standards of this sort, and that has reduced energy consumption in refrigerators uh, <coughs> uh, dramatically, as you could see here. Ah, but that's going to make the cost of refrigerators so much higher. Uh, <coughs> the green line shows what actually happened. The cost of the <coughs> refrigerators in real terms actually has come down as a result of the innovation. And you know, the triple whammy, the perfect storm, they've also gotten bigger in the process. <clears throat> in fact, right now, the size of the refrigerator is usually limited by the size of the door you need to get it through to get it into, into the kitchen. They actually have to take doors off refrigerators now to get it in, in, into some houses. Okay? Uh, so this, again, is another example of a, uh, basically a performance standard uh, and, uh, and some of its, uh, its results. So what about these things that I've been calling, we'll call environmental technologies? <coughs> um, people like cars, people like refrigerators, people like electricity. Uh, <coughs> uh, but who inherently loves uh, <coughs> a CO2 or an SO2 scrubber? Uh, <coughs> right? <coughs> uh, it's just not in the same kind of thing. And yet those are the kinds of examples of the kinds of technologies that in fact uh, are part of the solution to the environmental problems that we really do care about. So uh, most research on innovation, as I say, is focused on these technology policies, <coughs> which are things people want in a, in a market economy. Relatively little study of the role of government innovation for these environmental technologies, uh, which I'm defining as technologies whose sole purpose uh, is to reduce an emission or to achieve some environmental, uh, environmental objective. And they usually wind up adding to the cost of whatever you're, <coughs> you're producing. Um, we set out a number of years ago, we and uh, a few others, to, uh, to try to use retrospective case studies as a way of trying to provide some data-based insights uh, about the role of government uh, actions in these areas. At Carnegie Mellon, we've uh, done a number of uh, these case studies. Uh, some of the former PhD students are uh, in various California institutions, uh, I'm happy to say right now. And I get, what I'd like to do is walk you through a couple of these just to illustrate the kinds of um, um, lessons learned from, uh, from, these, from these studies. Um, <clears throat> We've employed a variety of research methods in doing this. I won't have time to uh, cover these. Uh, <clears throat> I'll try to give you just a little feel about what we've been able to learn by looking at uh, uh, trends in, in patenting and uh, what are <clears throat> uh, often called technological learning or experience curves. So let me first show you some results for a uh, power plant uh, SO2 control technology. This is interesting because going forward when we talk about CO2, uh, this technology actually resembles very closely um, 
the kinds of technologies that potentially could be available as part of a climate mitigation uh, strategy for, for CO2. Um, so first, in terms of the policy history, <coughs> um, SO2 was identified as a major health-related air pollutant uh, way back in the <coughs> late 19. 60s in 1970, the Clean Air Act amendments of 1970, kind of landmark legislation, <coughs> um, created uh, air quality standards that in many states required large reductions in sulfur dioxide emissions, <coughs> and also brought into being a new class of performance standard called new source performance standards. So any new power plant, for example, built uh, after a certain date had to meet a, uh, a specified and fairly stringent uh, reduction. <coughs> Only since 1990 there have been other forms of, uh, of uh, regulatory policies, cap and trade being, uh, being uh, the most uh, important. So those were the sticks, but along with the sticks, in fact, were a number of very significant uh, carrots. There was R&D funding and various financial incentives to help develop technology. Uh, and a very, what turned out to be actually a very important effort uh, <clears throat> on the part of uh, uh, government agencies to facilitate technology transfer and information exchange, largely through conferences, but a, a variety of formal uh, and informal activities. Um, <clears throat> again, the overall story about reducing that particular air pollutant, not unlike what we're talking about now for greenhouse gases, a variety of approaches uh, you could just shut down a coal-burning power plant to stop sulfur emissions, or you could switch to natural gas or some cleaner fuel, just as you could for CO2. Or you could install some type of emission control technology. And since the focus of this work was to try to understand technology innovation, we went there. Uh, <coughs> this is work uh, that uh, produced a, a PhD thesis from Margaret Taylor, who some of you may know, uh, UC Berkeley and Lawrence Lab now. <coughs> um, the good news about patenting is that uh, at least since about the mid-1970s, uh, a lot of this is on computer uh, uh, <coughs> tapes. Earlier than that, you actually have to go to Washington and sit in an office and look at a lot of paper. <coughs> and there was some of both. But you can get a lot of information. And one of the things we, uh, the first effort was to try to figure out which patents <coughs> in all the US patent database uh, related to this class of technology, and there were a number of ways of doing that. So here's, here's the result that we came, came out with. This is showing roughly a 100-year history, uh, simply the number of patents related to some type of sulfur dioxide control technology. <clears throat> now, I can't assert causality here <clears throat> um, in, any, in any rigorous way, uh, but uh, <clears throat> Uh, something seems to have happened around here that caused this huge jump in, uh, in what would be typically called inventive activity, right? Patent is part of the invention thing. Uh, and our speculation was that the Clean Air Act standards that required stringent reductions of SO2 may have had something uh, to do with that. And some of these other research methods I listed were basically ways of triangulating that hypothesis. Okay? Um, <clears throat> What we particularly focused on, uh, again, there are a variety of technologies in that mix. What we particularly focused on were the technologies that could achieve the largest reduction, the class of technology for taking sulfur out of the, <coughs> the gases that normally go up the chimney called flue gas. FGD is the acronym flue gas desulfurization. Technologies which initially could 
to 80% removal, then went up to 90 and, uh, and, and <coughs> is still going up. Uh, here's a picture of what that technology looks like on paper. These are the kinds of pictures engineers love to draw. Uh, <coughs> simple little, uh, little schematics. So here's <coughs> the <coughs> SO2-laden gas. This is a device often called a scrubber. It literally is ju just kind of a big bath. You just give it a bath in, uh, <coughs> in some chemicals that takes out the sulfur and the clean gas goes out. Um, here's what it looks like in practice, at least some of the earlier ones. Here's a couple of people on top of one of these systems at a fairly large power plant, actually not far from uh, <coughs> Pittsburgh where I live. Uh, if we zoom out a little bit, you can get a better sense of the scale. So we're talking about big stuff. This isn't little computer chips <coughs> when we talk about innovation on this scale. This is big stuff. And if I uh, zoom out uh, even a little bit more, everything I showed you is down there. <coughs> so this is a large coal-fired power plant. Uh, the actual electricity generation is just in parts of this building. Everything else you see in the picture is environmental control systems. Okay? Uh, <coughs> this is a particularly interesting place because, see if you can see it. Yeah, you see that cooling tower up there is actually a large nuclear plant just across <coughs> a bridge. That's shipping port. That's the first nuclear power plant in the U.S. back in the 1950s, and now, <coughs> now it's a large uh, station. So there's enough power in these two plants to uh, uh, <coughs> keep a lot of things going for a long time. Oh, by the way, I brought along with me, uh, I forgot to take it out of the bag, a piece of coal in case any of you want to leave as bona fide energy experts. Uh, <coughs> it occurred to me that coming to California, some people may have never seen a piece of coal. <laughs> Uh, and, and so I, I brought a small piece with me that actually came from that power plant. Uh, I would have brought a larger piece, except I tried that once, and the airport security uh, things don't seem to like it, and uh, <coughs> searched my bag for a while. So a little, little piece came through okay. So I can, I can uh, uh, give you a, a touch of that a little, little later on. Um, Here's basically the, the history of uh, the adaptation of that technology uh, over from the 1970s up to about 2000. Uh, this is the adaptation in the US and uh, Japan and Germany and, and other countries. Basically, because of the regulatory policies that were adopted, particularly the new source standards, but also many state and local policies applying to existing power plants as opposed to new ones, <coughs> Uh, this became the technology that was preferred by, uh, by the industry. Um, <clears throat> one of the next things we tried to understand was um, how the cost of this technology changed over time with increasing deployment. Um, and to do this, we turned to the uh, prevailing concept in the literature, <clears throat> often called a learning curve or an experience curve. Um, which again, I suspect some of you are, uh, at least some of you are familiar with. Uh, it's typically a uh, kind of a log linear model that basically says the more you do something uh, and learn how to do it, uh, the cheaper it, it becomes. Okay? And uh, there's a, a typical <coughs> measure of learning called a percent reduction for doubling the cumulative capacity or production uh, is, is one of those measures of learning. Uh, so we were able to actually carefully construct cost information for technology that basically did the same job at different points in time. <clears throat> and this is work that was published some, some time ago, and what we came out of 
this was with, if we, if we fit it to that traditional learning curve, there are actually better ways of doing that, but <coughs> forcing it to that model. Uh, we basically found a learning rate that basically said uh, every time you double the installed amount of capacity on power plants of this technology, <coughs> the capital cost came down by about 11%. Uh, <coughs> so at the rate of actual implementation that I showed you, over about a 20-year period, the cost of doing that same job, 90% capture, came down by 50%. Okay. Um, we also found that um, because of the regulatory uh, structure, other technologies actually started disappearing. There was a lot of uh, work in the early 70s on a technology to take sulfur out of the coal before you burn it. It was called coal cleaning. And here's a patent count of that. Uh, then it looks like something happened and people stopped working in that area. Uh, what happened was this is a technology that could do 20 or 30 percent reduction. Uh, new policies were adopted that said you need to do at least 70, maybe 90 percent reduction. And so there was simply no market for these technologies. Uh, and uh, basically, it, uh, uh, interest in uh, innovation in this area uh, went away as a result of those, of those policies. Uh, one more on power plants that I'll just quickly run through the other. Uh, major technology that is now required on new plants is for nitrogen oxide control. And you have this on gas plants and not just coal plants as well. Um, what's interesting here is that <clears throat> this was regulated under the same 1970 Clean Air Act as the sulfur dioxide. But the difference was in the case of nitrogen oxides, at least for power plants, the requirements were not very stringent as they were for SO2. So instead of a 90% reduction for SO2, here 40 or 50% was all you needed to do to meet, to meet the standard. Okay? Um, when we looked at the uh, patenting count, again, <coughs> for various types of NOx control, we found something similar. Again, uh, a surge <coughs> uh, uh, obviously stimulated by the requirements of the Clean Air Act. Um, when we started focusing on that high removal efficiency, the technology is called SCR. You don't have to worry about what it is. But this is basically an 80% removal technology as opposed to the required uh, 40 or 50%. Uh, here's the adaptation of this technology. Here, this is a little bit different than the other. The green here is the total world. So if you want to look at individual countries, here the first country to adopt it uh, actually, uh, back here in the pink, was Japan, <clears throat> and then Germany. The U.S. didn't start using that technology until <clears throat> more than two decades after the original Clean Air Act. Very different story than the evolution of SO2. <clears throat> uh, and uh, this is now going on. But, um, so you ask, well, where did the innovation come from? First, we also found that for uh, this technology, as with the other, uh, there was a very noticeable learning effect. Again, uh, a reduction of about 12% in capital cost per, per doubling. Okay. <clears throat> then when we tried to partition the patent database um, <clears throat> to first identify a particular class of technology, this high efficiency SCR technology, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> we found two, two clumps in here. Uh, and then when we look more closely at where the innovation came from, in fact, 
most of these patents <coughs> uh, in this clump came from Japan, and the second clump came mainly from Germany. Why would that be? It turned out in 1971 or so, Japan adopted stringent standards that effectively required this technology. And so guess what? <coughs> they started innovating and learned to make it cheaper. <coughs> and then about a decade later, to control acid rain in Germany, the Germans also required a stringent technology. And guess what? They took the Japanese technology and made it better and cheaper. Uh, <coughs> back in the, in the 1990s, again, uh, a decade uh, after Germany, uh, <coughs> when the US uh, enacted more stringent requirements, uh, we started buying Japanese and German technology <coughs> uh, to, do that, uh, to do that job here. So the other lesson that I don't have time to get into is uh, often many of the companies that <coughs> are the early innovators uh, often turn out to be the market leaders and, and benefit from those innovations financially. Uh, one more, uh, <coughs> another PhD, former PhD student, Jago Lee, uh, <coughs> uh, looked at the history of emission controls for automobiles <coughs> to try to see if we uh, could find any of these same kinds of, uh, uh, of trends. Automobiles are a bit, this is a different kind of picture. Uh, <coughs> again, automobiles initially came under that same 19. 70 and 77 Clean Air Act Amendments, 1990. <coughs> but there was a period of a decade or so in which nothing, uh, nothing uh, changed uh, during, uh, during the 1980s. On this, uh, <coughs> on this graph, these are actually emission standards, so the closer to zero you get, uh, this is a tightening of standards as you go up <coughs> in this direction for hydrocarbons, uh, CO, and, uh, and NOx. And you see it kind of went up in steps. Along with that, in fact, came uh, a number of innovations in technologies to address these uh, pollutants. Uh, <coughs> when, uh, when we looked at patenting trends, uh, interestingly enough, in response to the original Clean Act, there was a surge in patenting. Uh, after nothing changed uh, <coughs> during a decade, uh, <coughs> the inventors went to sleep for <coughs> 10 years. <laughs> Uh, and then when the 1990 Clean Air Act, in fact, started getting more stringent requirements, uh, <coughs> inventive activity picked up again uh, considerably. We also looked at uh, <coughs> this decade of, uh, of basically, if you like, technology stability to see if uh, during that period of time we could detect any cost improvements <coughs> now that the technology wasn't changing, and in fact, uh, we did, after we adjusted for the fact that precious metals, which they use, uh, <coughs> had escalated, and, uh, but the, the underlying technology, in fact, uh, also exhibited this learning type of behavior. Uh, these are some of the other technologies we've studied in terms of case studies, and again, there are papers and literature on this. So what conclusions do we draw from this? <coughs> um, a couple. First is that the stringency of emission reduction requirements seems to have been a major factor both in stimulating and directing inventive activities uh, and the deployment of cleaner technologies. Uh, the cost of achieving a given level of emission reductions uh, after a certain point when the technology stabilized <coughs> did tend to fall with increasing deployment uh, and continued R&D. Uh, and finally, the estimated learning rates, these uh, <coughs> 12 uh, type percent per doubling, uh, is actually consistent with what one finds in the literature for other 
consumer-type technologies for which there are kind of natural markets. <coughs> uh, so the key really is establishing a market for the technology, and that's what regulations uh, uh, of this sort do. So finally, I come back to something that relates to <coughs> Uh, climate change and uh, what we came here to talk about. Uh, what implications might this have uh, for one of the pieces of the uh, climate mitigation uh, portfolio, <coughs> uh, that technology of carbon capture and sequestration that I, that I mentioned to you? Uh, <coughs> uh, again, that, how many of you are familiar with this technology? Can I, okay, all right, all right, so I'm talking to the converter. All right. So I, I get through this uh, very quickly. This is for the three of you who haven't heard about this before, <laughs> okay? Uh, <clears throat> bottom line is if you believe, as many do, that fossil fuels are not gonna go away overnight, 85% of our energy, <clears throat> and we're gonna have to live with them for a number of decades, but we wanna do something rather urgently about the climate change. The only, and I would emphasize, the only way to get large reductions uh, in CO2 from fossil fuels, particularly uh, coal, but also natural gas for power generation, uh, is by capturing and uh, <coughs> permanently sequestering the emissions uh, <coughs> that, that are captured. Uh, I personally view this, and I think others do as well, as a potential bridging strategy to this uh, more sustainable uh, long-term future, but the question is how do you get there from here? And uh, this appears to be, again, if you believe there's urgency in dealing with this issue, uh, an important option. The other thing that makes this a little interesting and, and, and unique from SO2 scrubbers or any of the other things that we talked about, <coughs> um, this technology can, at least in principle, link the two major sectors that we talked about earlier, the cars and the, <coughs> and the electrical outlets. Usually they have nothing to do with each other, <coughs> two communities of people that don't overlap much. Um, but if you can capture and sequester emissions from burning fossil fuels, uh, then you potentially can produce the low carbon uh, energy sources you need for transportation. So <coughs> whether you think about electric cars, electricity has to come from somewhere, <coughs> or, or fuel cell cars, if you like hydrogen. Um, <coughs> most, the most economical source of those two uh, energy carriers <coughs> is going to be fossil fuels, even with carbon capture and sequestration. So if you can solve the carbon problem at the large facility and produce and distribute hydrogen and electricity for transportation, there's at least in principle a potential for linking these two sectors that traditionally uh, have, not, uh, have not been coupled. <coughs> uh, the other reason that there's an interest in this is that these uh, modelers who uh, look at energy futures uh, all conclude that without, without CCS as part of the portfolio, uh, the cost of mitigating climate change uh, are several trillion with a T dollars uh, higher than if you, uh, uh, if you include it in the portfolio. So taking it off the table makes the job a lot tougher. Uh, <clears throat> it's already tough enough and uh, a lot, uh, lot more expensive. Uh, the big but in all of this is that today this is still uh, a technology that is fairly expensive. Uh, if you like carbon prices, something uh, <clears throat> probably a little north of $70 a ton, metric ton of CO2 is what it would take <clears throat> to make this uh, interesting for a, a utility. Um, 
It hasn't yet been demonstrated. It's commercially used and widely so in various industrial processes, <clears throat> but it hasn't yet been demonstrated at a large scale, something on the order of several hundred megawatt power plant. <clears throat> uh, and uh, there's really no strong incentive today for its use absent, again, some regulatory driver. The issue of public acceptance is another real one. Uh, at best, I could say today is that it's varied. There's some communities that don't like this, others that have no trouble with it. So public acceptance is another potential issue. Uh, this is what some of that technology uh, actually looks like. These actually are at power plants. This is a, a gas-fired power plant uh, outside of Boston, not unlike a lot of the power plants uh, here in California. This is a coal-fired power plant not too far from Washington, D.C. Why on earth would they be doing this? Uh, the answer is they're not sequestering the CO2. They're capturing it so they could sell it as a profit <coughs> across the street to uh, uh, typically food manufacturing processes that use it either for dry ice or to make all those bubbly drinks that we love. Okay. <coughs> but the technology is basically something that uh, exists. These are basically at, uh, at a scale that's about 10 times smaller than a full-scale power plant. Um, so what's the outlook for improved or lower cost CCS technology? This is actually a critical question for some of these uh, modeling activities and for any uh, serious look at uh, greenhouse gas policies. Um, it's something we set out to work on uh, just a few years ago. Uh, what we tried to do there was to use the benefit of the case studies, various case studies that I described to you very briefly. Uh, to try to apply them to a power plant with various types of power plants, actually, <coughs> that would use this technology. So we would take a power plant, take it apart, see how mature different pieces are today, <coughs> apply learning rates, <coughs> and then put it back together and see what the overall story would look like. Again, if you're interested in any of those details, I can, I can point it to you. The key conclusions, though, that came out of this is that uh, it appears that there is a potential to substantially uh, reduce the future costs of power plants with CCS technology, but as in uh, <coughs> all lessons about learning, achieving this would require not only sustained R&D, uh, but also large-scale demonstration and deployment, uh, basically to foster that, that learning process. And finally, the timing and magnitude of these would certainly be uncertain uh, and uh, critically dependent on policy drivers <coughs> uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that brings me to my last topic of uh, <coughs> what types of policies would be needed uh, to foster innovations for climate change mitigation. Again, we don't have <coughs> time to talk about this in too great a detail, but let me just kind of <coughs> touch base with a couple of reminders. The first is that inherently um, climate change <coughs> Uh, is an environmental uh, issue uh, and problem just as uh, other types of environmental issues <coughs> that we've talked about here. Um, and the kinds of mitigation requirements that we laid out that are needed to achieve that stabilization uh, simply are not going to be achieved by voluntary technology policy measures alone. <coughs> we have a couple of decades of experience uh, with that with even modest reductions uh, and it just uh, ain't working as effectively as one would need. So regulatory policies of some sort, regulatory policies that limit greenhouse gas emissions are also going to be needed to limit, uh, to mitigate climate change. Uh, 
where I personally come down and others, uh, <coughs> I'll mention a study in, uh, in a minute, uh, come down as well. Uh, it's actually a combination of these uh, kinds of policies, different types of regulatory policies, uh, <coughs> and different combinations of carrots and sticks uh, <coughs> that appear to be the best, most productive uh, <coughs> approach to fostering the kinds of innovations that would be uh, required by markets in a carbon-constrained world. Okay? Um, I want to mention also energy policy. Again, often people who work on energy policy or think about it uh, are a different community of people, <coughs> uh, both in the technical and policy sphere than people who think and worry about environmental issues. Um, <coughs> uh, there, and I think we've already seen examples of this over <coughs> the past decade or so, energy policies can uh, either further help or impede progress and in innovations uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, one of the things that will certainly be critical is uh, sustained uh, R&D and D. R, the last D is demonstration, research, development, and demonstration. Um, <clears throat> these are two lines, two curves from, uh, again, another modeling study <clears throat> that simply show the cost in terms of a carbon price, dollars per ton, <clears throat> that would be required to achieve a stringent reduction in emissions, uh, assuming that we... Uh, uh, only use technologies that we know about today, even though they might get slightly better over time, versus a more aggressive scenario uh, where various advanced technologies uh, come into, <coughs> into being as a result of our D&D. Again, the take home here is that the availability of advanced technologies uh, can greatly reduce, we believe, the cost of, of mitigation. Uh, so what about R&D? Um, here's a, uh, a graph a couple of us put together for a recent National Academy study, uh, I'll mention in a second, uh, that shows the history from 1980 up until uh, the most recent data available of federal spending on uh, s different categories of science and technology R&D. Uh, this orange line here coming down to the low point uh, is energy R&D. So if you go back to the 1980 kind of time frame, uh, to first order, we were spending a reflection perhaps of priorities, roughly comparable amounts on energy, on space, on health, uh, and on other science and technology areas. <coughs> but look at what's changed, right? Uh, Spending on health has been uh, the, the area that has uh, been most prominent in, in recent decades. <clears throat> Many of these others have at least held constant while uh, energy has declined uh, significantly. So um, <clears throat> the take home there is that government support of energy R&D has been declining uh, and is much lower, in fact, than other areas. Well, what about the private sector? Um, <clears throat> Uh, sadly, it's not any better, <coughs> uh, in, uh, particularly in the energy area. Again, here's some data we put together that shows private, estimates private sector <coughs> spending uh, in uh, both absolute terms, billions of dollars a year, but <coughs> also as a percent of, uh, of sales, which is one of the common metrics in this area. <coughs> uh, this is for worldwide expenditures for U.S.-based companies. Uh, so here's an average, about 4.5% of sales on average 
uh, is spent on R&D. Uh, the leaders are pharmaceuticals uh, and IT, uh, which are typically viewed as kind of the innovative uh, industries. Uh, here's the US electric utility industry. Uh, and even uh, the oil and gas industry is, uh, effectively is, is somewhere near the bottom of that list. So the electric utility sector basically spends about a tenth of what the average would be and, uh, and even less in terms of uh, uh, the leading. So R&D spending is also far below that of other major industries. Uh, we've argued in a recent report, this is the report I mentioned earlier, on <coughs> limiting the magnitude of future climate change. This is one of four reports that came out of a large study called America's Climate Choices, uh, <coughs> that turning that around is going to be one of the critical steps to uh, fostering uh, innovation. So there's much more discussion on these issues uh, that you can turn to here. Uh, so uh, here's my uh, cl closing slide. Uh, <coughs> what will the future bring in, in all of this? Um, what we do at Carnegie Mellon to answer this question is we use our, uh, since we are a high-powered computer, uh, uh, high-end high computer universe, so we use our advanced forecasting model. Here it is. <coughs> and uh, we meet every once in a while. We get the graduate students together in a closed room, make sure nobody's listening in. We say the magic words, and uh, climate policy is, is revealed. Uh, the last time we did this, uh, which was just the day before yesterday, just before I came out here, uh, the answer that came back was, <laughs> look to California. California has, in fact, uh, for many decades now, <coughs> uh, been the place where environmental leadership, I would say, has been uh, most pronounced. <coughs> uh, and um, uh, AB 32, your climate policy, is comparable to the kinds of things uh, we talked about here. Uh, I'm sure it's not going to be easy. It's already gone off in fits and starts, but I, I, I personally believe that uh, uh, leadership from this state, in fact, uh, can serve as a model for the rest of the country and perhaps the rest of the world. And so it's going to be fun to be <coughs> hanging out here for the next couple of weeks. And uh, I'll just close here. And uh, if there's time for questions, be happy to engage. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.